Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Schultz success. Germany's SPD party wins a narrow majority and promises a coalition before Christmas. China's carbon crackdown, Beijing's efforts to reduce emissions, brings blackouts and forced factory closures, and petrol panic. Driver shortages in the UK mean fuel pumps run dry. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move, great to be back with you after some time away. I honestly did miss you. And whoa, I also missed a lot of news, including a week filled with Beijing crypto bashing, Evergrande bondholders taking a thrashing, and plenty of Washington teeth gnashing as Congress dithers over the debt ceiling and spending plans. Oh boy, we've got a lot coming up. From political clashing to a rehashing, too, of last week's volatile stock market action, let's take a look at what we're seeing. A mostly lower open for Wall Street on tap. Tech also getting hit the hardest as bond yields tick higher. That said, I consider this pretty positive overall in the face of several global cliffhangers. Let's call it that, including slower Chinese growth as Beijing tries to slow energy consumption. That then poses a risk to the growth of other developing nations. Deutsche Bank actually warning today that global supply shocks could get, quote, very messy in the weeks ahead. We'll be there to cover it. Already messy for the UK, as I've mentioned, as fuel shortages bite. We've got all the latest on all of that coming up, including a post-Merkel model in Germany. The German DAX is higher and now less than 2%, in fact, from record highs, despite the uncertainty over who will lead the next coalition government. We'll discuss that too. Asia closing mostly lower as we remain ever ready to talk ever grand. All signs point to the embattled Chinese property developer missing a crucial debt payment, meaning this crisis could get ever grander, but it has a one-month grace period to pay up, so it's not all over yet. Clearly not a good time to try and raise cash either. No surprise that the company's electric car division cancelled a secondary Shanghai listing too. Oh, there's lots to discuss. Let's get to the drivers. A power shift in Germany. The Social Democratic Party scoring a narrow victory over Angela Merkel's party in the country's landmark election. The leader of the left-leaning party says he wants to reach a deal to form a coalition government before Christmas. Fred Pleitgen is live in Berlin with the latest. Fred, great to have you with us. Before Christmas, I mean, that gives you a sense of the challenges of how long these talks are going to go on for. It is a victory, I think, for Mr. Schultz and also a huge disappointment for Angela Merkel's party too. Walk us through this result. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. It's definitely a big disappointment for uh, Angela Merkel's party, for the Christian Democratic Union and the candidate that it put into the race, Armin Laschet. I mean, if you look at it, it's it's by far the worst ever results that they got uh, in uh, post-World War II uh, Germany. Uh, and certainly they lost about, I think, about 9% of what they had in the last election. And keep in mind that the election in 2017, when Angela Merkel was still running, the results there they had were so bad that that prompted Angela Merkel to say that she would not run for another term. So just that, that sort of gives you an indication at what point that party has now descended to. And you're absolutely right also to point out that Olaf Scholz does see himself as the winner of this election. Of course, his Social Democrats managed to get the most votes in the election. He had a press conference earlier today where he said he feels that he should be chancellor. He wants to form a coalition with the Green Party that also had a lot of gains and also with the Liberal Democratic Party. 
And I was able to ask him at that press conference what all of this means after 16 years of Angela Merkel, who was such a big figure on the international stage, how he plans to try and take her place. Let's listen in. If you do manage to form a coalition and become the chancellor, how do you intend to fill those big shoes? I think the first topic for German politics will be to form a stronger and more sovereign European Union. And make the, making this happen will have an influence on the international strategy and the foreign policy of Germany. What sort of a partner will Germany be for the United States in NATO and on the international stage, especially as the Biden administration continues to challenge China? The transatlantic partnership is of essence for us in Germany and for a government that will be led by me. And so you can rely on a continuity in this question. It is important that we understand ourselves as democracies and that we see that in the world that becomes more dangerous, it is important that we work together, even if we do have conflicts in one or the other question. So you have Olaf Scholz saying, if he becomes chancellor, that he wants to strengthen the European Union, wants Germany to remain strong in NATO and a strong partner uh, to the United States uh, as well. Obviously, not all is said and done here in Germany. The Christian Democrats are continuing to say that possibly they could manage to form a coalition. Uh, Their main candidate, Armin Laschet, has uh, acknowledged that this is a really bad showing, but also says he will still try to talk the Greens and the Liberals to see whether or not they might be willing to work with him. But right now, it certainly seems as though Schultz is in the driver's seat, Julia. Yeah, but as you said, nothing said and done here. And actually, the word that's popped out for me there was continuity. I mean, we've had 16 years of relative stability despite periods of turbulence all around the world. Uh, predictability, I think, as well for Angela Merkel. We can talk about domestic priorities, and I know there's all sorts of challenges that the next coalition government has to face, but actually it's the international stage, Frederick, that I wanted to ask you about. What, what's that going to bring, whoever this next coalition government is? And perhaps the greatest area of uncertainty that I can see, the relationship with China. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That, that's definitely hitting the nail on the head. I mean, on the one hand, uh, every single one of the, the parties that uh, could be in a coalition government, whether it's the Conservatives, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and also the Liberals, all of them are very much pro-Europe. So you are going to see Germany continue to play a strong role on the European stage. Uh, obviously, someone like Olaf Scholz or someone like Armin Laschet is not going to be like Angela Merkel uh, immediately, but Germany is always going to be strong and have a strong role in the European Union simply because of its size and also because of its economic power as well. But the big shift that's happened here in Germany over the past couple of years, under Angela Merkel, is she has indeed moved Germany closer towards China. If you look at the trade relations between Germany and China, you look at trade agreements between the European Union and China, those are all things that in, in many ways are a legacy of Angela Merkel. Now, of course, you have the Biden administration challenging China. And, and you know, as part of my question to Olaf Scholz, how Germany would react to that um, if he does become chancellor. And he didn't really give an exact answer, which probably is no surprise since he's not hasn't even formed a coalition yet. But certainly I do think that that is going to be one of the big things that a nation like Germany is going to have to deal with. If there's more friction between the U.S. and China, where does Germany stand? And will Germany at some point have to take a side on that. Uh, Germany, uh, its exports to China have risen a great deal over the past couple of years. Of course, Germany is an exporting economy, and so therefore that will be an absolutely 
fundamental question, if not the fundamental question for this country in a foreign policy sense, but in an economic sense as well, Julia. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And there are many fundamental questions and you were asking a lot of them there. And to your point, it doesn't matter whether you're the leader or not, you have to have some of the answers because at some point you're going to have to tackle them if you, you end up in charge. Fred, great job. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Fred Plyke in there. Now, we were just talking about China and we'll go to China now, where homes and factories have been facing power blackouts. Apple and Tesla are among some of the companies most recently affected. Will Ripley is on the story for us. Will, great to have you with us. I think we should explain what's going on here. Some of the provinces trying to limit power outcut in order to cut emissions in the country. But of course, that has a knock on effect. Just talk us through what we're seeing. It's a crisis of their own creation once again. And it's interesting to see it happening in Northeast China, Julia. After all, you know, all my trips over the years, where back in the old days, I'm talking about 2014 when I spent an entire month, and it was almost, uh, you know, the air pollution was so heavy every single day because of all the coal-burning factories. But now there is really a concerted push to cut back on coal, to cut back on emissions, to meet China's climate goals. It's been struggling to do so because their post-COVID recovery has been largely industrial and manufacturing driven. Those industries require more electricity. And as a result, uh, the, 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 the supply just isn't there. Coal prices have really been surging. Um, and uh, you said it, yeah, you know, Apple, Tesla, some of the big uh, companies, the big names that have been hit, but you're talking about steel, aluminum, cement, and potentially in the coming weeks, you know, paper and glass, all being affected by these power shortages, not to mention consumers themselves. There are shops at malls in Northeast China, according to Reuters, Julia, that are, uh, you know, operating by candlelight during uh, peak hours. And some malls even have been shutting down early. You have consumers being told to keep their thermostat at a, you know, at a toasty 70, uh, 78 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 degrees Celsius. And of course, in Northeast China, as temperatures start to plummet, people have to worry, is the electricity going to be on when they want to heat their homes? You have people being told to avoid using high output energy appliances like microwaves and water heaters. Uh, but, but what we're being told is part of this is, as you mentioned, a crisis of China's own creation because these local officials are under a lot of pressure uh, to, hit their, to hit their quotas for the year, their KPI, their performance indicators, including energy intensity, which China has vowed to cut by 3% in 2021 as they push toward the very ambitious, and some might say uh, at, at the current rate, you know, very inconceivable goal of being net zero, carbon net zero by 2060 and hitting their peak of carbon emissions by 2030. So it's uh, it's certainly a time of belt tightening when it comes to electric use. But frankly, Julia, this might be something that many other places around the world start to see as countries really have to have to crack down on energy use. Even here in Taiwan over the summer, there were rolling blackouts because the semiconductor industry and those factories use so much energy. You combine that with air conditioning demand and it's just hard for some countries to generate enough. Yeah, if you're going to rein in on your coal, gas, carbon emitting technologies, then you've got to be able to ramp up your renewable resources. And if the private sector Green isn't energy. galvanized to Absolutely. do it, then you're going to have shortages. And I couldn't agree more. We're going to see it all over the world. And growth is going to pay the price. Will Ripley, great to have you with us. Thank yeah. you. Another, another uh, story that very much ties to what we were just discussing there. The UK facing a fuel crisis after panic buying led to a petrol stations running out of gasoline and diesel. A shortage of truck drivers is straining supply chains across the nation. The government is promising action. The question is what? CNN's Nina Dos Santos is at a London petrol station where the pumps are dry. Nina, talk us through it. How are people reacting? 
Well, people, as you can see, have been panic buying, and that is why petrol stations like these that got their last consignment of petrol on Saturday morning had to shut up early, and they just keep having to turn people away, just hands in the air, wondering when they're going to get the next supply. Normally, this petrol station, which is quite busy, even if it's small here in this part of uh, central London, gets three deliveries of tankers full of uh, petrol every single week. Now they need one at least once a day, the manager was telling me, to try and keep things moving. Um, so across the country, obviously, the government and the fuel companies are busy saying that there is no national shortage of fuel, Julia, um, and that they're working hard to try and restore supply rather than panic buying and that shortage of delivery drivers and truck drivers is the real pressure point. A government minister was on the airways earlier this morning saying he hoped it will all have died down by the end of this week. They're trying to change the visa rules temporarily to tempt thousands of European workers back here to drive trucks, to train people up quickly. And also they've suspended competition rules to make sure that fuel companies can talk to each other to divert fuel supplies to empty petrol stations like this one. Julia? Yeah, I mean, that's just one of the challenges they're facing. Obviously, there's going to be a price impact as well. I was reading this weekend that there's going to be a significant increase in in many households' bills for energy costs. And it comes at the same time as for millions of households too. Some of those bumped up benefits are being reduced. Again, Nina, net impact here. It's a crunch going into the colder months. Yeah, I think people are really concerned about this point here because concomitantly to this fuel shortage that we're seeing that's affecting motorists' ability to get to work and so on and so forth, after years of having to work from home recently, um, we're also seeing a spike in natural gas prices and a number of small independent gas retailers going bust and the government having to deal with that situation as well. And the truck driver problem also, Julia, isn't just making itself felt. Hang on, let me just show you, ask our cameraman to pull out, because we finally are seeing the truck arrive. This is a moment that um, the man in that petrol station has been waiting for since Saturday morning. You can bet locally people here will be arriving and queuing up because I can tell you over the course of Sunday, uh, when I was here looking at this petrol station, the queues were really round two blocks, Julia. So this is, this is the type of thing across London people are actually looking for, keeping their eyes peeled. They're on apps like Nextdoor asking each other uh, where the next petrol station that's full um, is that they can go to. Some people say they've gone to 11 petrol stations to try and fill wow. up the tank. So just going back to what I was saying about uh, the pressure point of inflation, it's not just fuel prices, it's not just gas prices. As you said, benefits are being cut. Also, we've had tax rises in this country. And there's real fears that as we head towards the next part of uh, the year and also Christmas and beyond, that this labour shortage, by the way, the UK has one million vacancies here. It's a huge labour shortage. This labour shortage will continue to be a huge problem in supply chains for the UK, but also beyond. Julia? Of course. And it's quite funny because when I introduced you, I was wondering whether there would be queues there. But to your point, people aren't going to queue if they know that the uh, that it's empty, that there's nothing to get there. But now, of course, as you said, as we've literally just seen that supply truck appear, you can expect the drivers and the queues to begin as well. Uh, Nina, thank you for joining us today. Nina Dos Santos there over in London. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. is still processing more than 10,000 migrants who had traveled to the Texas border seeking protection. The U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security says authorities will determine if they can remain in the U.S. or if they'll be expelled. Many have already been sent back to Haiti, where they face an uncertain future, as CNN's Melissa Bell reports. 
Junior, his wife Elian and their two-year-old were deported to Port-au-Prince on Tuesday, seven years after the couple says they left in search of a better life. They're now staying with friends, the three sharing a single bed. Not much, but more comfort than they've known for several months. When work dried up in Brazil in June, where they'd been given asylum, the family headed north through 10 countries, some of it by bus, but much of it on foot. Elian, though, says that the worst was arriving in the United States. As they arrived, she says, everything they had, including toothpaste and soap, was taken, so that as they got into the prison, they had only the clothes on their backs. She says that when they were called up, they thought they'd be freed. Instead, she says, we were shackled. Seeing my husband shackled was the worst, she explains. Then they handcuffed the women, and then they put us on the plane. My baby was crying, and I couldn't even hold him. And that was what made me cry. The family gives us a tour of the neighborhood they find themselves back in. Junior says that Port-au-Prince is worse now than when they left. I ask him if it is the insecurity that has worsened. He laughs and tells me there is no security in Haiti. Gang violence, the assassination of the country's president and the aftermath of a 7.2 earthquake in August, just some of the dismal conditions forcing families to embark on the grueling trek to the U.S. border with Mexico. And yet, the flights keep on coming. Seven in all arriving here in Haiti just this Friday. Some here at Port-au-Prince, others at the airport in Cap Haitien in the very north of the countries. The logistics almost impossible to deal with, says the International Office for Migration, given the sheer number of people being deported. Back in the place, they desperately wanted to leave. The dream of finding a better life in America ends here back on Haitian soil with a handout of $100, a hot meal and a ride to the bus station. People are going to suffer now. There are no jobs and there is nothing here. What are those people going to do? That's the dilemma facing thousands of migrants forced to return to a country the U.S. special envoy to Haiti called a collapsed state before he resigned on Thursday. A small group of people turned out in Port-au-Prince to protest the deportations, a show of dissent, but little help to the migrants still being flown back to Haiti, returning to the many problems they thought they'd left behind. Melissa Bell, CNN, Port-au-Prince. Residents along the eastern shore of Spain's La Palma Island are on lockdown as volcanic lava nears the Atlantic Ocean. That could cause explosions and send toxic gases into the air. It's the ninth consecutive day of eruptions. Thousands of people have been evacuated and hundreds of homes have been destroyed. Wow, those pictures. Russia's foreign minister says Mali plans to hire Russian mercenaries to help with national security. This comes months after France withdrew its forces from the region. Mali's prime minister says rampant terrorism and criminal violence are prompting the move. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, President Biden's make-or-break week, high-stakes battles over spending, with the threat of a looming government shutdown, to name just a couple of things, and surgical robots. I speak to the CEO of startup Vicarious Surgical about his plans to combine next-gen robots with virtual reality for the latest in med tech. Stay with us. We're back after this. 
Welcome back to First Move, cautious pre-market action on Wall Street as we approach the end of the third quarter later this week. Gains in energy and banking stocks are helping boost the blue chips too. That said, so many challenges await investors in the days ahead. The complexity of the ongoing fiscal fights in Washington are, quite frankly, just mind-numbing. The Evergrande crisis is raising fears about China's financial plumbing. And meanwhile, for imprisoned Huawei CFO Men Wangzhou, a homecoming. She arrived back in China over the weekend after a diplomatic deal with the United States. Meng spent nearly three years under house arrest in Canada on charges related to Huawei's business dealings with Iran. She pleaded not guilty to the charges. State media pulled out all the stops, hailing her extradition as a big victory for China and calling her a national hero. Some seeing the move as a potential positive for U.S.-China relations at a very crucial point in time. Okay, let's bring it back to our top story now. And Germany's left-leaning Social Democratic Party will begin negotiations to form a coalition government after narrowly defeating outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel's Conservative Party. The electorate has spoken very clearly. It has said who should build the next government. This is a clear mandate the citizens have expressed. These three should lead the government. And we have to say, CDU, CSU have not only lost big, they have also gotten the message from citizens to no longer govern and to go into opposition. The new government of Europe's largest economy is expected to face a number of challenges, including climate and energy policies for the future. Veronica Grimm is a member of the German government's Council of Economic Experts, also known as the Five Sages. Veronica, fantastic to have you on the show. I know it's tough to predict anything in terms of who's going to be the next chancellor and, quite frankly, what the next coalition government may look like. But let's talk about what the next coalition government needs to do to, I think, what's best called future proof. Germany. Where does it start? Yeah, um, I think climate protection, uh, digitization, as well as strengthening the education system must be the top priorities of the um, coming legislative period. Um, This is a um, big endeavor for the forthcoming government. And I uh, think um, this has also be the topics that have been um, prominent in the electoral campaign and um, also um, more general um, concerns the people in Germany. Do you consider Germany behind, whether it's the rest of Europe or at least the major economies in the in the developed world? I mean, we've seen and we often talk about 16 years of of great stability and predictability under the rule of of Angela Merkel. But the idea that that Germany's behind in things like technological development, in in digitization, in in groundwork, I think, to promote innovation. How has this happened and, and how do you change that today for going forward? I think there are some uh, challenges uh, going forward. We are in a deep transformation also um, in our um, ambition to become one of the first climate neutral countries worldwide. And uh, the parties will have uh, to combine uh, several uh, things wisely uh, that they put um, 
at a focus in the electoral campaign. Um, the Greens stand for ambitious climate protection. The Social Democrats want a socially balanced transformation. The Free Democrats say they want to rely on the forces of the social market economy and strengthen emission trading and uh, reduce taxes. And the Christian Democrats have emphasized that uh, we should focus on becoming a climate neutral but strong industrialized country. Um, I think we are in the middle of this very ambitious transformation that includes, of course, um, um, getting better at clean tech, at all the technologies that imply, uh, enable us to, um, to have a climate neutral economy and also in the area of digitization. And I think this is uh, important to get further on and um, uh, get into the making of it. I mean, we can focus on any one of a number of things here, but if we focus on energy in particular, I mean, we talk about climate neutrality, but I do believe over 70% of, of Germany's energy needs are imported as fossil fuels. And it comes at a time, and I know this ship has sailed and it's not turning around anytime soon, if ever, um, this ramp down of, of nuclear energy. It's tough to try and transition economy to renewables when you sort of haven't got the private sector, which is the bulk of investment in Germany, in the right place. Yeah, I think um, we have to change our climate policy instead of a multitude of small scale measures uh, which are in place now. There needs to be a coherent overall climate policy concept with the CO2 pricing as a guiding instrument um, and across all se sectors at the European level. And the next German government should work towards this and this will enable the economies and in particular the private firms to go in this direction and this will enable also the capital market to go in this direction of a, a sustainable uh, economy. In addition, uh, we have to expand uh, the infrastructure for energy transport and mobility um, across Europe much faster than planned to date. And global cooperation on climate protection must receive significantly more attention. You mentioned it. We import at the moment 70% of our primary energy in the form of fossil fuels, uh, gas, oil, coal. Um, and this has to change and we need to foster global cooperation in order to make it going to uh, trade renewable energy um, in form of electricity and also in form of hydrogen and hydrogen-based fossil fuels all over the world. I think this will become a huge transformation also in the global energy trading system, um, which we are at the beginning of. I mean, I know this is something that you've researched in great detail and uh, I'm sure we're talking to the government about. But to your point there, this is not just about Germany. This has to be EU wide. In fact, even beyond a collective effort in order to, to improve the situation there. Let's talk about digitization. Um, I read over the weekend and uh, have discussed it with a, a friend, actually, who um, until recently was living in Germany, that, that COVID results were being shared by health authorities via fax machine. I mean, again, what needs to be done at the government level, whether it's within the government or beyond to facilitate greater digitization and use of technologies in the country? Because this is something that will be severely limiting for Germany, if not today, in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think this is a big endeavor. It's not about um, digital infrastructure only. Um, so 
in some parts of Germany, we still have no access to a mobile phone network. And uh, this is, of course, in a country that is very populated. Um, this is something that we have to urgently change. But it's also about education and also about um, digitization of the administration. As you mentioned it, we uh, still use fax uh, machines in, uh, for example, the health offices. And this has to change. And digitization, especially in the administration, also makes the processes much faster. And this is very important in this transformation. We don't have much time uh, in the transformation um, in the area of digitization, as well as in the area of climate protection. And so we have to become faster. We have to change, digitize our administration. But this also means we have to enable the people and the employees to um, do it, to um, be on that track and to accept also these changes. And uh, I think this is very important to um, also address it in the education uh, system and also address it in further education in order to able uh, enable the people to uh, get along and um, promote it. A hundred percent. I mean, we need a coalition before Christmas. I think that's the bottom line and they need to get moving. Veronica Grimm, great to have you with us, a member of the German Council of Economic Experts there. Thank you for joining us. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running this Monday, and it's a slightly sluggish open to start the trading week. Hey, it's a Monday morning. We get that feeling. Investors are grappling with fresh global growth concerns, as well as the fast approaching U.S. fiscal cliffs. That said, the S&P 500 remains less than 4% from record highs after bouncing off key technical levels last week. That was a positive sign for the chart washers, at least. In the meantime, oil hitting fresh three-year highs on supply fears as Goldman Sachs raises its year-end oil price target to $90 a barrel. I'm just checking how far away from that we are right now. A fair way. Chalk a lot of that up to Hurricane Irene, which is still messing with American production too. Tight oil supplies, just one of the number of supply chain headaches facing the global economy. More than 20% of businesses surveyed by Oxford Economics expect supply disruptions to continue into 2023, if not later. Bitcoin, in the meantime, a bit volatile after last week's 10% plunge on China's new crypto transaction crackdown. Bitcoin is down more than 10% this month. Other major cryptos like XRP have fallen even further. But remember, crypto watchers say Bitcoin tends to snap back after Beijing-driven pullbacks. They've been going on since 2013 by my calculation. This week will be a critical one on Capitol Hill. President Biden's agenda is on the line with votes on two huge signature bills. But topping the to-do list is averting a government shutdown. Lawmakers have just three days to reach a funding deal. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us and great to see you. So US Congress battling to fund itself beyond Friday, avoided debt default as it bangs its head against a debt ceiling, I believe of its own creation, and agree monster spending. What should we be worried, worried most about, if I can get my words out? And in a pandemic. <laughs> oh, so, and in a pandemic. Forgot that. <laughs> any one of these things is a deadline that we have uh, uh, toyed with and Congress has trifled with in the past. All of it together is a real doozy. Uh, Greg Valier, who you know, called it migraine time and said we're in for maybe some weeks here of migraine headaches as we try to figure out the process of this. Uh, look, the debt ceiling, um, the conventional wisdom is that that's going to have to be resolved. And the markets are acting as though... Uh, It will somehow get resolved, but it is really a dangerous game playing with fire on the on the debt ceiling. There's no question about that. 
in terms of funding the government, I mean, you could have a, a government shutdown as early uh, as Friday morning, 1201, uh, after the stroke of, of midnight, because, you know, government funding runs out and Democrats are fighting Democrats about the Biden uh, agenda here, the spending agenda. And Republicans are fighting Democrats, Democrats about social spending. The only thing anybody really agrees on is this bipartisan infrastructure bill. But that's all tied up in this other mess of process and chaos in Washington. So it is a real it is a real tough nut to crack here this week. Yeah. And, and it's po- politics at the core of it, because no one wants to be blamed for increasing the debt ceiling or overspending or overspending money, quite frankly, though, of course, you've got the Democrats can't agree what they're doing. Um, I was just Googling the word doozy there as well. Something outstanding or unique of its kind. And unfortunately, the debt ceiling debate isn't a doozy because yeah. we've been here before so many times. And I think that's why the markets tend to yeah. snooze. Now, if the idea um, that the richest nation in the world will actively choose to default on its debt, remember, not through bankruptcy, but just rather stupidity isn't the wackiest thing you've heard, then perhaps issuing a $1 trillion coin in order <laughs> to solve the problem is. Um, but it is possible. What can you tell us about this? So, you know, the White House is saying this is not under consideration, but, you know, the number of times we've talked about it simply because this <laughs> because it would be a gimmick, I guess, that would solve your problem very quickly. A trillion dollar coin that the that the that the U.S. government could mount, the administration could 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 actually make this coin. And then you take a trillion dollars, um, you know, off off the books, essentially. But wouldn't that undermine sort of your faith in the U.S. currency? I mean, uh, most serious economists think it's pretty gimmicky. Maybe it's disruptive and it's a way to solve a problem we keep butting our heads up against. But really what has to happen here is they have to raise, Congress has to raise the debt ceiling or they have to abolish the darn thing. I mean, they've oh. raised it 80 times. You can't pretend on one hand to be like, oh, we're going to have this limit from what we can spend. And then bipartisan administrations always spend more. You know, this is just <laughs> the way it has been for decades. Yeah, I just, I, it's, it's, it's this, and I'm smacking my own forehead. I don't know whether you can see it. It is a debt ceiling of their own creation. And I get the idea that you want to limit spending or have some limits on future governments. But the idea that we keep coming to this and risking not paying government workers as a result to me is just absolutely bonkers. And again, I say it, the richest nation in the world threatening to purposely default on its debt, not through bankruptcy, just through sheer political stupidity, quite frankly. It's, it's just it's self-inflicted stupidity. Right? Boggling. It, to me, it's a simple intelligence test, right? And, and Congress Failed. fails it over and over and over again. And, you know, what if there were a short a short default that was accidental, right? Some, some, what kind of message would that send to the rest of the world? What could happen to, uh, to markets? You know, we know that it raises borrowing costs every time they get really close to this thing. It costs, you know, in, for the sake of having an argument about not spending more money, they make it more expensive to finance the money we've already borrowed. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. It's also luxury of being able to be so stupid, quite frankly, because you are the richest nation in the world and you have the biggest, deepest bond market, quite frankly, that people don't have many other options. And so you don't get the kind right. of volatility that you could see if you were a smaller nation in this kind of um, political stupidity, quite frankly. 
Yeah. I tell you, there's so much happening this week in Washington that you're going to hear a lot of process and a lot of sausage making. It's going to be eyes glaze over stuff. All of it matters to the American family, right? It yeah. all matters to health care costs, child care costs, the ability to go back to work in the biggest labor market, in the biggest economy in the world. So, I mean, we have to keep going back to the core of it, which is we're talking about making life different for American working families. That's what's at the core of all this. You're going to hear a lot of politics, though, this week. Yeah. Enough D.C. dysfunction. Thank you. Next. Christine Raymond. <laughs> we're so over it. Come on, guys. <laughs> I know. Okay. All right, next on First Move, is this the future of medicine as we know it? We speak to the head of the company that's been pioneering robotics to help with surgical procedures. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and to a company that's making innovative innovative, if I can get the word out, first moves in the medical profession. Vicarious Surgical is using AI and robotics to develop the next generation of medical technology. And big investors like Bill Gates think it has serious potential. The firm also raising $220 million as it listed on the New York Stock Exchange just last week. Vicarious Surgical CEO Adam Sachs joins us now. Adam, great to have you with us. Congratulations on the listing, too. I think we should start there. You described that day as surreal. How does it feel one week on? I mean, it's it's still an incredible feeling. I, uh, it, it's very much a dream come true. We are not only a public company and can share what we're doing with the world, but we have the capital we need to execute. Yeah, I mean, it is all about the capital. Let's Let's make it clear. Explain the vision. What is Vicarious Surgical working on and, and what makes you different? So most surgical procedures done today are are still done the same way they've been done for a long time with large incisions opening up the patients called open surgery. And they have almost 20% complication rates just from the incision. So what we're doing is a small robot that's designed to operate from the inside out. It actually lets the surgeon essentially go inside the patient and perform a procedure through a single small incision. And uh, this is in contrast to what exists today, which are large industrial robotic systems that operate across the abdominal wall, which is incredibly challenging for for surgeons to perform. Yeah, just a one and a half centimeter incision. That's what you're talking about making. And then you let the the robot do the work. You know, I used to talk to my father about this um, when I was a small child. And he said the idea that we will have doctors using hands and, and doing it themselves in a few years will be considered crazy. And yet sort of 20 years or so on, I feel like whether it's cost, whether it's the the technology, it's too much for the doctors to have to learn in different circumstances. It sort of just hasn't lived up to the promise. It goes back to, I think, what you were saying there. But why will this be different? Why is it easier for surgeons today to use this kind of technology versus what others are working on? Yeah, so the the technology that's existed for the last um, uh, 20 years or so is is built on these large industrial robots. And then they have long, slender instruments that go through the abdominal wall and into the patient. And the challenge is not only are these machines huge and they, they cost millions of dollars and require dedicated operating rooms, but on top of all of that, the surgeon actually creates the kinematic profile of the robot, the motion profile for every procedure, because it pivots about the abdominal wall, 
that it means that the motion is defined by the surgeon based on where they put the incisions and where they want to operate. So what we're designing is, is a system that allows everything to go in through one incision. We've invented these decoupled actuators that allow us to not pivot about the abdominal wall, but actually have the motion from within. So our robot has nine degrees of freedom. It's designed to mimic the wrists, elbows, and shoulders of the surgeon naturally. And then we're coupling that with a VR headset so that the surgeon can literally look around and see as if they're inside of the patient. They can move their arms and have them move with the motion of their own body. So to the surgeon, it really feels like they've been shrunk down and placed inside of the patient instead of controlling this giant machine. I mean, it sounds quite frankly, otherworldly and like something that we would see in a sci-fi movie. Um, where do you see the greatest difficulty in, in convincing, and you can tell me what feedback you've had from the medical profession, convincing the doctors that this is, particularly using the virtual reality part of this, simply like operating today, versus a patient knowing that you're just going to make this little cut and let a robot do the rest of the work? I'm trying to work out how I feel about that. Yeah, so uh, I think one of the biggest things that we've always emphasized is that the, the doctor is still the one in control of the procedure. Uh, we are you know, adding a lot of guardrails around it, but similar to a self-driving car, the driver is still in control, the surgeon is still in control, they still make all of the decisions. It's just uh, a tool to make their jobs easier, to make them be able to operate more safely and, and more quickly. And uh, we're really excited about the potential for our device to do all, all of these things. I mean, I know you've had positive feedback from the FDA. The industry seems to be very positive. Obviously, you've just listed and raised money to Bill Gates, as I mentioned. So there's a lot of people looking at this and saying, wow, we do think this is transformative and it has potential. Can you give us any stats on what you think in terms of, and you mentioned it with the complication rate, simply with the, the cut that's traditionally made, uh, improved cost perhaps and recovery times from using this kind of technology versus what we do today? Yeah, so I, I should definitely say the FDA uh, has, has granted us the first breakthrough designation in right. surgical robotics, which means that they've reviewed what we're doing in detail, and they believe that we have significant potential to have clinical benefit where nobody has succeeded. And they provide a whole slew of benefits with that. Uh, we, you know, we're designing our system to go through this 15 millimeter, 1.5 centimeter incision. Existing single incision systems have not only fewer degrees of freedom in joints, but they go through 2.5 centimeter incisions, which are associated with complication rates of, of approaching 10%, uh, starting to actually get back toward open surgery. And then from a cost perspective, our device is so much easier to build because it's no longer four gigantic industrial robotic arms. It's a small robot inside of the patient and then a non-robotic support system outside of the patient. So not only does that make it smaller, it makes it more portable, lower capital cost and easier for hospitals to acquire. It's really all of these things together that solve all of these problems that makes us so excited about the potential of what we're doing. I know. I was. I would have to admit, I was very excited. I'm supposed to not be biased about these things. Um, hopeful, let's call it that. Very quickly, cost of one of these robots and how long do you think before we could see this being used in hospitals, assuming all goes well? So we'll be filing for FDA clearance uh, in later 2023. And 
Those clearances are typically turned around pretty fast by the FDA. We do get prioritized review with that breakthrough designation. Uh, so we're hopeful that that pretty soon after that, we'll be able to commercially sell our device. Uh, we'll be selling it when we're initially on market at, for a, an average selling price of $1.2 million. Hmm. Good to know. Adam, we keep our fingers crossed. Keep in touch, please. And actually, I was just looking at the, the robot itself. I'd like a little smiley, little smile in between what looks like two eyes. A friendly robot, please. Skillful and friendly. Adam, we'll, great we'll work on that. <laughs> Thank you. I'll page in that <laughs> little piece of it. Adam Sachs, great to have you with us. The CEO of Vicarious Surgical. Congratulations once again, and we'll speak soon. More first Thank you again. After the break. Okay, welcome back to First Move with a final check of the stock market action. And U.S. stocks are beginning the week relatively mixed. Blue chips are gaining as oil and bank stocks rise, obviously tied to uh, interest rates rising too. But tech is weaker for a second straight session. And it's all because of this rising bond yields. U.S. 10-year yields touched 1.5% a little while ago. That's the highest level that we've seen in four months. So worth keeping an eye on. Tech, of course, is highly interest rate sensitive. In the meantime, Facebook's Instagram pauses its plans to build a version of the app for children under 13. The head of Instagram says, quote, this will give us time to work with parents, experts, policymakers and regulators. The decision comes as concerns rise over the negative impact of the photo sharing service on teen girls, among others. The U.S. Senate is also set to hold a hearing to discuss the problem later this week. And the movie magic continues for Marvel's hit Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Rings. The action hit grabbed the number one spot for the fourth weekend in a row at the North American box office. The film has grossed over $360 million globally. It's now facing stiff competition, though, from Sony's comic book film Venom Let There Be Carnage, strange name, and the James Bond movie No Time to Die. That one I will watch. And finally, at a time when shortages seem to come thick and fast, Heinz has a solution to the problem of getting all the sauce out of a ketchup sachet. Say hello to the biggest thing to happen to sauce since packets. The Heinz Packet Roller. 100% sauce extraction for 100% sauce satisfaction. Magically engineered to bring you every last drop. I mean, really? Is that really real? Apparently it is. Ketchup packets are in heavy demand thanks to a surge in takeout and food orders during the pandemic. Heinz is increasing production by 25% to 2 billion sachets annually. My first question when I saw this was, if it's real, I want one for my toothpaste. Yes. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Good to be back. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.